Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about pre-code Hollywood, featuring the silent film era with the works of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. So I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. According to the article, What is Pre-Code Hollywood? The Most Risk Pre-Code Movies Explained, written by Chris Heckman on StudioBinder.com, the Pre-Code Hollywood era is the period in American filmmaking between the silent era and the institution of the Hayes Code, also known as the Motion Picture Production Code, which went from 1929 to 1934, which I talked about in one of my previous episodes. Pre-Code films feature progressive ideas and bold subject matters. Some characteristics of the pre-code Hollywood era are progressive ideas, empowering women, gangsters, social issues, monsters and mayhem, and the commentary on the church. The first director that we are going to talk about today is Charlie Chaplin. According to the article from Novelty to Art, How Charlie Chaplin Breathed New Life into Cinema, written by V. Renee, Many of the films during the silent era revolved around a philosophical theory called the superiority theory, which means that humans take delight in other people's misfortunes as a way to feel superior. For example, laughing at a muscle-bound man for falling on a banana peel in front of his date because he's big and we're not. Chaplin was different. He was different because he made audiences laugh in relation to his suffering. So he was able to use laughter as a defense mechanism, which allows people to explore and discuss unpleasant and painful moments in their lives, rather than just laughing at a physical comedic gag because somebody is bigger than the audience member. According to the article, Chaplin, Film by Film, A Journey Through Charlie Chaplin's Movies from 1914 to 1967 on WordPress.com, referring to Chaplin's short film 1AM, Chaplin took comedy seriously, referring to the medium as a quote-unquote concentrated observation. By observing what was around him, he was able to create a really great balance between tragedy and comedy. The first movie that we are going to talk about today is City Lights. This movie was released in 1931 and was written and directed by Charlie Chaplin. This movie is about the tramp, who is played by Chaplin, who falls in love with a girl, played by Virginia Sherrill, who happens to be blind and tries to help her financially with the assistance of a wealthy man. The themes of this film are friendship, loyalty, poverty, and social class. According to the article, City Lights, The Immortal Tramp, written by Gary Gideons on Criterion.com, Chaplin's new art was a form of storytelling combining burlesque comedy and dreadful pathos, each turned to a pitch so high that the audience is jolted from one physical response to another. Laughter and tears, the two faces of comedy and not tragedy, but rather the melodramatic concession of pathos, looking straight at each other. This quote relates to the theme of friendship. The tramp meets the girl while she sells him a flower. Because she is blind, she relies on touch and sound, and that is what the tramp represents for her once they meet. So she ends up finding a lot of comfort in him, and they end up creating a really heartfelt and endearing bond. The pathos of this relationship is the tramp feels her vulnerability and makes it a point to help her with her hardships. 
They both are metaphorically able to look straight into each other's souls. They have a sense of humble appreciation for each other. The girl appreciates his help and the tramp appreciates her struggles. They also play a huge role in the theme of poverty. The girl lives with her grandma and both are at risk of getting evicted from their home. The tramp does not have a job at the time and doesn't really do anything for work, but he is willing to try to find something in order to earn money so he can give the money to the girl because he really cares about her and wants what's best for her. As much as he tries to hold down a job, he can't, and he bounces from place to place trying to find work. But then he ends up meeting a wealthy man who befriends him in a drunken spell, and the tramp ends up crashing his house and pretends to be in his quote-unquote party or circle of friends. Eventually, he gets kicked out of the house, but ends up going back and stealing money when he wasn't able to hold down his jobs, and he then gives the money to the girl so she can have enough money to keep her house and possibly get an operation to fix her eyesight so she can see. Those little moments that we see of the tramp making an effort to help the girl and her grandmother shows how loyal he is to helping a friend because he doesn't have a lot of money either, but he's willing to make the sacrifice because of the love and the appreciation that he feels for the girl. Giddens continues to state, Familiar territory today, but it smacked of radical egotism then. No one had brought it off before, and Chaplin, the orphan music hall clown who became, through movies, the most popular comedian the world has ever known, defied his partner's warnings that his ambition would cost him his audience. In terms of radical egotism, the tramp in prior films was more self-motivated and had a bigger self-interest, meaning that he always was a character that was front and center and never was one to take on a more compassionate and kind tone to his delivery. In this particular film, the character of the tramp takes on a more endearing and sensitive role, which means that he was able to defy audience expectations because he's not as silly or as physical as he was in other films. And it shows how one character can develop or have multiple layers depending on the story. In this case, there are bigger emotional stakes regarding the characters, which means that they have another side that they're able to play out where we see a more kind and compassionate and endearing mentality to the tramp as a whole. This new layer that we see of this character plays a huge part in the ending of the film. The girl gets her eyes fixed and is able to see again, and she reunites with the tramp after he had to go away for a little bit because of the crime he committed when he stole the money from the wealthy man. But their reunion isn't romanticized at all. It isn't what you really would expect of the kind of friendship that they started out with. You would assume that it would become something more and they would become a couple and it would be this really lovey-dovey kind of a reunion, but that's not the case. Their reunion is seen more as a sign of a mutual respect and appreciation for each other, which shows the growth of this character that Chaplin had envisioned and created for his films. The next movie that we are going to talk about is Modern Times. This movie was released in 1936 and was written and directed by Charlie Chaplin. This movie is about the tramp who struggles to live in a modern industrial society with the help of a young homeless woman played by Paulette Goddard. 
The themes of this movie are industrialization, bureaucracy, and urbanization. According to the article, Modern Times, Exit the Tramp, written by Saul Austerlitz on Criterion.com, overall, Chaplin seems to be drawing a connection between his awareness of the tramp's obsolescence and potentially his own, and fears about the mechanization of modern life and its potential for crushing the common man, whom the tramp has come to symbolize. The themes of industrialization lie within the tramp working in the factory. Working in the factory means that they begin to use newer equipment, such as machines. And then a lot of the people in the factory are fighting against the risk of unemployment, which means that the tramp is no longer useful, because that whole entire sequence of the tramp working in the factory at the beginning of the film represents a lot of chaos and confusion, because he doesn't know how this equipment works, and his usefulness is put to the test because he's not used to working with a lot of machines. An example of this is a scene where the tramp gets caught up in a strike. The tramp is walking down the street, notices a flag that falls off a truck, and picks up the flag. Little does he know, he ends up being followed by a group of men going on strike. And by the looks of it, there is this wide shot of the tramp leading the strike because all of the men are following him and the tramp ends up getting caught by the police and taken to jail. This particular scene is not only a great example of physical comedy, but also a really great example of the representation of the quote-unquote common man. Because the tramp was essentially minding his own business and trying to make a new life for himself after not being able to work in the factory anymore, but he gets caught up in this economic inequality pretty much by accident and ends up taking a lot of that brunt with him and tries to help other people because of this particular incident throughout the film. After he is released from jail, the tramp runs into a homeless woman who tries to steal bread, and he ends up taking the blame for her and does everything he can to try and go back to jail, because once he's in that jail cell, he feels a sense of belonging there and doesn't really feel like he has much use for anything outside of being confined in a small space. The theme of bureaucracy in the film is represented by the police. The tramp and the homeless woman cause a lot of chaos trying to find work, and the police take to jail the people that quote-unquote disrupt a working-class society. And because the tramp and the homeless woman are constantly bouncing around and back and forth trying to find some kind of stability for the two of them to live, they are considered to be a disruption to people who are trying to work and make money in a society filled with a lot of poverty and a lot of unemployment at the time. Austerlitz continues to state in the article, Chaplin pits the tramp's superhuman improvisational abilities against a soulless mechanical sphere that he believes is the negation of our collective humanity. The theme of urbanization falls perfectly within this quote. The threat of machinery being a main source of industrialization causes an influx of people looking for better paying jobs because essentially everybody wants to get ahead because of their abilities to want to be on top of everybody else. They forget to look out for the rest of society who is struggling with poverty, homelessness, and other aspects of life that might bring them to an inferior position over people who are working at a better paying factory or any other better paying location.
After bouncing around from place to place trying to find work, the tramp and the homeless woman eventually find a job as entertainers. But the police are after the woman for theft. And eventually the tramp and the woman have to go on the run again from the police. The ending of this film really symbolizes hope. Because they don't really know where to go and they don't really know what's going to happen next. But the tramp reminds her not to give up and to try and be happy. Next up is Buster Keaton. According to the article, Buster Keaton or the Work of Comedy in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, written by Tom Gunning, Gunning states, Unlike Chaplin, Keaton's tragedy did not end with exile and defiant independence, but with oblivion and gradual absorption in the impersonal meshes of the Hollywood system. A careful viewing of Keaton's films, however, reveals that from the beginning he had a peculiarly modern insight about individuality and systems which contrasts rather sharply with Chaplin's romantic vagabond. Keaton's style reflected modern economic and social systems that were in the midst of industrialization for mass products and consumption, which was also known as Fordian. He used a vaudeville style of performing to create a modern environmental art form. Vaudeville was a type of performance act that ran through the 1880s to the 1920s, and these acts consisted a lot of the times of song, dance, comedy, magic, Anything and everything under the sun that is considered entertainment for that time was seen in a vaudeville act. For example, if you've seen the movie For Me and My Gal, a lot of what Gene Kelly and Judy Garland do in that movie, that is vaudeville. Buster Keaton actually got his start doing vaudeville with his family, so being able to see those influences throughout his film is a huge part of what makes him the legendary performer that he was at the time and still is today. Gunning continues to state in the article, Keaton's reputedly blank-faced expression actually reflects the deadly concentration of someone trying to find his place within a system too large and too intricate for him to control. The characters in a Buster Keaton film often don't have the freedom of the quote-unquote open road, but rather the intention of a modern man trying to find a spot where he won't get hurt. In other words, a man who is in the midst of a chaotic and fast-moving society trying to find his place within a space that he's not comfortable or not used to. Keaton was known as the great stone face of the silent film era because of his deadpan facial expressions. This came in handy with a lot of his visual comedy. He didn't really use any words in his films, rather physicality and strong expressions to create a hilarious reaction. A lot of his movies have to do with something impossible being done in a physical manner or an unexpected moment happening which catches the audience off guard in a lot of ways. Other aspects of visual comedy are alternative interpretations from the audience, possibility of choice between two things, course of action, and a certain level of ambiguity. The movie The General was released in 1926. This movie was written and directed by Buster Keaton and Clyde Bruckman, with an adaptation by Al Bosberg. This movie is about Union spies who steal an engineer's beloved locomotive, and the engineer does everything he can to pursue a locomotive single-handedly and straight through enemy lines. 
The themes of this movie are personal redemption and nostalgia with highlights of issues because of the Civil War. According to the article, The Paratexts of Buster Keaton's The General, written by Kendra Preston Lennard, Lennard states, Keaton claimed that The General was his favorite among all of his movies. In making it, he hoped to fulfill his ambition to make a really big comedy with a historical atmosphere. While this picture will be designed primarily for laughs, it is my aim to make it historically correct and equally acceptable in the North and the South. It will not be burlesque, but a comedy spectacle of certain thrilling episodes in the struggle between the states. This film is more well known for its historical context because Keaton and Bruckman feature the Confederate point of view and make it into a parody of the original source material. This creates an opposition of public opinion because the Confederates are seen as the good guys and the Unions are seen as the bad guys. The South should be seen as the villains because of the Civil War, and Keaton cast the Unions as the bad guys and gave his character, who happens to be a Southern engineer, an underdog trope. For example, the scene where the Civil War begins. Johnny, who is played by Buster Keaton, is in a relationship with Annabelle Lee, who is played by Marion Mack. Johnny tries to enlist in the war, but is rejected, and no one explains to him that he is more valuable as an engineer to the South. Annabelle is unaware of his attempts to enlist and therefore sees him as a coward because she goes by the mentality that real men fight and men are nothing if they can't fight. The theme of redemption comes in handy when the Unions capture the general, which is Johnny's train. They capture the train with Annabelle aboard and Johnny goes after them on his own, rescuing Annabelle and causing an attack. Therefore, this causes a role reversal. And a huge part of that role reversal lies within the reasons for the Civil War. Some of the reasons for this war were economic interests, cultural values, the federal government controlling the states, and slavery in American society. This causes an interesting take within the film because historically speaking, the South was in the wrong for defending slavery. And the film represents switching sides and the possibility of rooting for the enemy. The movie ends when Johnny rescues Annabelle. He fights the unions and he gets the girls. So this film really dives into that predictability as far as the quote-unquote Hollywood movie ending because he fights the bad guy and gets the girl and saves the day. But the historical references of this film have a bigger impact than the story itself. Next up is Steamboat Bill Jr. This movie was released in 1928 and was written by Carl Harbaugh and was directed by Charles Reisner. This movie is about William Canfield Jr., who is played by Buster Keaton, who comes to the town of River Junction to work on his father's riverboat crew. The themes of this movie are innocence, disappointment, and parental approval. According to the article, Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. is still painfully funny, written by Stephen Maine. Maine states, Keaton's arrival in town as William Canfield Jr. is a wonderfully controlled reveal. Having informed his father he'll be wearing a white carnation, the older man rushes over with his first maid and eagerly grabs at every strapping young gent stepping off of the train. Imagine his dismay when the locomotive pulls out, leaving a small and oddly dressed man complete with pencil mustache, ukulele, and checkered cap. It's not the offspring he hoped for, nor is it the welcome Jr. expected. This quote plays a huge part in the theme of innocence. 
William Jr. comes off as this awkward yet ignorant figure. He seems very unaware of his purpose in the space and he is constantly looking for guidance. And he hopes that by meeting his father, he will be able to receive the guidance that he so yearns for. But these feelings also compare to the theme of disappointment. His father, played by Ernest Torrance, is a bigger man with a gruff personality who has never met his son before and expects his son to be just like him. With that being said, we see William Sr. coping with the disappointment of not having the child he quote-unquote envisioned. This comes into play with parental approval as well. William Jr. wants to please his father and tries to conform to what his father wants or expects him to be. Maine continues to state, Instead of a loving parental embrace, he's met with embarrassment and barely veiled hostility. This only intensifies when his arch-rival King, who is played by Tom McGuire, bursts into laughter at the very sight of Junior. After William Sr. meets his son at train station, he gives his son a makeover. He takes him to the barbershop and tries to buy him a new hat. And he gives his son this makeover to make it seem like he knows what he's doing and to make sure his son doesn't look so lost in the world. Bill Jr. eventually falls in love with King's daughter Kitty, who is played by Marion Byron. This creates a triangle of different character dynamics and really builds the climax around winning over Kitty, pleasing his father, and avoiding King. Along with these triangles of different character dynamics, we also see the relationship between William Jr. and William Sr. begin to really form. William Sr. teaches William Jr. how to fight for himself and essentially look out for himself. And we see William Jr. carry on what he has taught throughout the film. The ending of this film represents all that William Jr. is taught. The characters get caught in the middle of a storm, and William Jr. ends up saving his dad, King, and Kitty, and he even ends up going back into the ocean to save one more man. So we see him have this newfound confidence that his father was able to instill in him. So the two went from being on total polar opposites of the planet to coming together and realizing that they could make each other better and learn from each other. Moving on to some fun facts. For City Lights, this was Orson Welles' favorite movie of all time, and this was Charlie Chaplin's personal favorite of all of his films. This is the first film that Charlie Chaplin made during the sound era, and this film marked the first time Chaplin composed the score for his own films. For Modern Times, Chaplin devoted eight days to filming the department store roller skating scene where he skates blindfolded on the edge of the fourth floor, coming within inches of falling over the edge into the deep stairwell below. The dangerous large drop was actually a painted scene on a pane of glass carefully placed in front of the camera to align with the existing set and create the illusion of great height. This film was supposedly supposed to be Charlie Chaplin's first full sound film, but instead sound is used in a unique way. We hear spoken voices only when they come from mechanical devices, a symbol of the film's theme of technology and dehumanization. Specifically, voices are heard from the video phones used by the factory president, the phonographic mechanical salesman, and the radio in the prison warden's office. Shooting silent allowed Charlie Chaplin the option of cranking the camera at any speed he wanted, 16, 18, or 24 frames per second. This allowed him the flexibility of rhythm and movement in any scene. 
Discounting later parodies and novelty films, this was the last major American film to make use of silent film conventions such as title cards for dialogue. The very last dialogue title card of this film, and thus it can be said the entire silent era, belongs to the tramp, who says buck up, never say die, we'll get along. Some fun facts for the general. For the scenes with the opposing armies marching, Buster Keaton had the extras, which included 500 Oregon National Guard troops, wear the gray uniforms of the Confederacy, and march in one direction past the camera. Then he had them change uniforms to the Union Blues and had them march past the camera in the other direction. The first try at getting the cannonball to shoot out of the cannon into the cab caused the ball to shoot with too much force. To cause it to shoot into the cab of the engine correctly, Buster Keaton had to count out the grains of gunpowder with tweezers. This film was Buster Keaton's favorite of his own films, and he did all of his stunts for this film. Some fun facts for Steamboat Bill Jr. This movie was used as the model for Steamboat Willie, which came out in 1928, which was Mickey Mouse's first cartoon with sound. The hat that Buster Keaton quickly removes from his head and hands back to the clerk with a frown is Keaton's own trademark pork pie hat. Marion Byron could not swim. So the scenes where her characters in the river with Buster Keaton were filmed with Buster's real-life sister, Louise Keaton, serving as Marion's stunt double. The water was very cold, and during the day of filming, Buster and Louise consumed four to five glasses of French brandy to keep them warm. Now on to our movie recommendations of the week. First up is Cover Girl. This movie stars Gene Kelly, Rita Hayworth, and Phil Silvers, and is absolutely beautiful. A lot of very serious, poignant moments that I wasn't expecting, but definitely reminded me why Gene Kelly is the legend that he is because of how well he's able to and capture so many different emotions and so many different styles, sometimes even in one film, and CoverGirl was a perfect example of how well his range was as a entertainer. And of course, Phil Silver's always funny and charming and a joy to watch. And the beautiful Rita Hayworth, who sings and dances and is just very graceful and beautiful in this movie. Loved it. Cover Girl, if you guys want to check it out. Brilliant. I also started my Danny Kaye marathon with The Five Pennies and The Court Jester. The Five Pennies is another really great example of how well Danny Kaye's range was shown in one film. Danny Kaye was one of those performers that can do everything. He was a comedian, he was a dancer, he was a singer, he was an actor. With The Five Pennies in particular, this film really showed his range as an actor and a performer in general as well. There's a lot of really serious moments, a lot of really fun moments, but really The Five Pennies is a family movie and it's about a man who's trying to balance his family and his career and the passion that he has for the work that he does while still being just as passionate for being a dad and a husband and it's just such a beautiful film, great music, great performances, highly recommend The Five Pennies to you guys. And last but not least, we have The Court Jester. This film that Danny Kaye starred in is the exact opposite of a movie like The Five Pennies. The Court Jester is extremely fun. It's a very fun, family-friendly kind of film, but it's very chaotic. It is a musical, but there's a lot of different characters running around, a lot of different dynamics shifting, just a lot of crazy but fun chaos. 
So I would definitely recommend the court gesture as a great sit down for your family and your friends and you to get together and watch a good movie. So CoverGirl, The Five Pennies, and The Court Gesture. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for next week's episode on the mastery of Alfred Hitchcock.